Can you find me a worker that worked at Amazon in 2012? Still works there. That's yeah, pretty tough. But if you find me someone that worked at UPS in 2012, we can probably pencil out exactly how much they make, when they bought their home, when they bought a new car, how well they're doing in the community. In Canada, where they have mandatory interest arbitration in the private sector, unlike here in the United States, yeah, 92%. Of first contracts get signed. Wow. And that's compared to 30-something percent in, in the United right. States. That's right. There was a lot of labor opposition to the war in Vietnam. And one could say that Dr. King was right in the middle of it. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, two reports on striking nurses. The first from Radio Labor on the 7,000 nurses who walked out in New York City earlier this week. And the second, from Workweek Radio, on the nurses who struck in California. Then, from the Solidarity Podcast, from Teamsters Local 769, the threat Amazon poses to transportation workers. On the Workers' Mike, a weekly show out of Chicago, Operating Engineers Local 150 General Counsel Dale Pearson talks about arbitration as a means of achieving a first contract. Our last report comes to us from the We Rise Fighting podcast, which goes beyond Martin Luther King's usual I Have a Dream speech to look at Dr. King's legacy with regards to unions, labor, and the anti-war movements. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember, you can find links to the shows you hear today in the show notes, as well as all the shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. I'm Mark Bolange. In New York City, more than 7,000 nurses are on strike at two hospitals demanding safer staffing levels. The hospitals, Mount Sinai Medical Center and Montefiore Medical Center, are refusing to negotiate the union's demand for more nurses. Nancy Hagens is the president of the New York State Nurses Association. Fire it up! Can't take no more! Fire it up! Won't take no more! Fire it up! Won't take no more! All right! 
right. Hello, my union siblings. It's good to see all of you today here in Solidarity. We know that nurses united will never be defeated. conflict it really is because you're leaving your patients and you develop relationships with them you you get to know them you get to know their families you have other co-workers that's not nurses that you're thinking about too that's on the floor but at the same time if we're burning ourselves out that's that's the thing like something has to stop it's a vicious cycle we need to be able to work safely with our patients and that is not something that Mount Sinai is willing to negotiate with us right now Taking care of a patient, but safely in a safe manner. Not the condition they have us working for the past five, ten years. Enough is enough, Sinai. And that's it. Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
I got a hidden flask, I'm paid in cash, got a cross above my bed. You know, I hitchhiked from Chicago, and a man walked up and said, This is a union town, a union town. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. On today's show, we will hear from National Nurses Union, CNA striking Sutter nurses who had a solidarity rally on January 1st. The National Nurses Union, California Nurses Association nurses, voted down a concession contract pushed by the CNA staff that included a two-tier contract that eliminated defined pensions for newly hired nurses. They are angry about the dangerous staffing ratios that are threatening the care of patients and burning out the nurses. They spoke about the issues of health care and the need for a democratic union run by staff nurses. Ana Ramirez, I work in labor and delivery for 25 years. This is the whole point about us being out here. It is not the salary. It is actually the fact that we don't have enough staff. We, don't, we have nurses who work 8, 12, 16 hours without a break. We have patients waiting on the hallways in triage for between 2, 4, 8 hours. And why? Because we don't have enough nurses. Sometimes they're waiting for nurses, for room. That is the reason why we are here. So Sutter wants to distract the community by saying that it is the pay that we're asking for. That is not the point. Be real, Sutter, and get nurses at the bedside if it is true that you care for patients. So the hospital says that they can't get nurses. Is that true? I would say that they're letting nurses go. They are nurses. But they're all going to different doors that are getting better salary, they're getting more flexible hours. That's where they're going. And they have let them go. We are training them and they're letting them go. The thing is, there's a state law that says you have to have breaks. Why aren't the laws being enforced? That's just a simple fact about it. We don't have staff. So we have to work through our breaks. Wouldn't the state say to Sutter, you have to have staff, otherwise you can't operate? Yeah, but they're breaking the law. Like Carolina said, they're just blatantly breaking the law every day, almost every day that we're at work. We're working with, we're down like four or five nurses every day, every shift, night shift and PM shift, even worse. It's horrible working conditions. And the reason we can't retain nurses is because we don't, we get paid so much less than other Bay Area hospitals. Train new nurses. Nurses, they invest lots of money in training them, and then they leave, which I don't blame them. It's crappy conditions, and you're getting paid less. You go somewhere else and get paid more and get your break. I think the Sutter executives are really going to change. It sounds like it's all about making money. You're getting paid over between two and two and four, at least, million dollars. What would you change? Yeah, they don't. All they care about is the bottom line. That's all they care about. It's really sad. It's really sad sad for us and it's sad for our patients and that's why we're here. Do you think there needs to be a national movement of all healthcare workers? Absolutely. After what we've been through, we're done. We're fed up. We're done. You've had enough. You've had enough. This is they've crossed the line. COVID put us over the line and we're we need to we need the respect that everyone talks a good game. Oh yeah, you should care about nurses in your community and blah blah blah, but I don't see that being backed up by actual real life things that matter to us. And staffing is our number one concern. I was told we are a democratic union. Democracies have voting, legitimate voting. We have elections coming up in CNA. Unfortunately, the forms to declare to run always come in that CNA magazine that seem to come after the expiration date to put in your name has come and gone. So we need representation. 
Nurses at many of these hospitals need better representation. We need our voices. Voices that reflect real nursing values. Let's see if John and the other labor reps can roam our hall, halls with ballots for us to represent ourselves in the board of directors. They say they want change and they're here behind us. Let's see if they really stand behind us. If you want change, you have to be that change. We have to be that agents of that change. I have to say we must continue to stand shoulder to shoulder. Bargaining for 18 months is absolutely nonsense. It is all about greed, maltreatment, and we're not having it. We have proved this by standing here, sun or rain. I sent a picture yesterday to a family member. I said, oh my goodness, you guys are there, out there, and it's raining. I said, yes, that is patient care and advocacy. We are brave, and we can stand tall, even when some of us are short. We can still stand really tall. And what we are doing right now, I mean, we are brave, and what we are doing right now is like, I read somewhere where it says, planting a tree that you may never sit and enjoy the shade. That is what we're doing right now. We're doing things that will benefit the new nurses that are coming, are going to nursing school, we may never meet them, but we are still planting the tree that we will never sit under the shade. That's advocacy and selflessness. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, this is the Solidarity Podcast from Teamsters Local 769. I'm Brian Besbiati, but everybody calls me Bez. Teamsters Local 769 conducted our 2022 Steward Seminar on July 30th in Deerfield Beach, Florida. Over 130 stewards attended from all over our jurisdiction to hear from numerous guest speakers and Teamster educators who are here to provide stewards with tools and information to make them even stronger in the workplace. Next gentleman I want to introduce, I've, I mentioned earlier, somebody who's very visionary with regard to the growth of our union. He's the director of organizing for Joint Council 42 in Southern California. He's also secretary treasurer of Local 1932 in San Bernardino. And he is the leader of the IBT's Amazon campaign and, and the fight to organize Amazon, as I referenced in Randy Corrigan from Local 1932. Morning, sisters and brothers. Morning. Let's try that again. Morning, sisters and brothers. Morning. All right. Are we proud to be Teamsters? Yeah. Oh. Let's try that one more time. Are we proud to be Teamsters? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. And so how many here raise your hand if you think the growth of Amazon doesn't affect you? Raise your hand if you think it does not affect you. 
All right, all right. It's very true. Isn't it crazy what they have purchased? They want to turn the transportation industry, let's just talk about that part. They want to turn it into what happened to bookstores. It's a fact. There are not a lot of bookstores left, are there? They want to be the end-all, be-all to transportation, just like they want to be the end-all, be-all to everything. Amazon's proliferation in all these industries is extremely dangerous. The Teamsters Union has got a more than 100-year tradition in the transportation industry. Our members, our members, sacrificed to build this industry, worked hard over the last 125-plus years to build this industry, to create good middle-class jobs. And Amazon wants to invest billions of dollars to destroy that. They want to turn these jobs into what we can see, instead of it being a good middle-class job where someone can afford to purchase a home, they can have a pathway to retirement, they have great health care for their family, they can be a, a, a positive connection to their community. Instead of it being that, they want it to be this high turnover, high pace, maybe two, three years working somewhere. Can you find me a worker that worked at Amazon in 2012 in a warehouse that still works there? Yeah, it's pretty tough, but if you find me someone that worked at UPS in 2012, we can probably pencil out exactly how much they make, when they bought their home, when they bought a new car, how well they're doing in the community, comparatively speaking. And that we can do that with, a, let's say, a grocery company or postal service or any of the other cadre of companies that they, that they compete with. As always, Teamsters Local 769 Solidarity Podcast is produced by the officers and staff of Local 769, including Josh Zivilich, Roly Pena, and Steve Myers, with contributions by Local 769 business agents and by me. Brian Besbiak. We encourage you to visit our website at teamsterslocal769.org slash solidarity. If you're just tuning in, um, you're listening to um, the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN. We're talking to Dale Pearson, General Counsel for the uh, Operating Engineers Local 150. Um, we discussed, Dale, last week um, some concepts that we think that labor should push in, in the year 2023. So Ed and I were talking about um, the fact that 2022 saw a giant uptick in union elections, right, Ed? What was it like? A f- yeah, it was a 50 percent increase over 2021 in elections that were successful. But now 2023 leaves a lot of those groups to negotiate their first contract. And they're finding out that they are ill-equipped in many cases to stand up to a Starbucks of the world or an Amazon that has an army of, of seasoned lawyers. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking for solutions and talking about solutions for these groups of workers that may not have the same resources uh, to try to even the playing field. Well, to throw another stat at you, Ed and Ken, um, through uh, half of 2022, uh, the union um, win rate was 75% in labor board elections, which right. is, you know, it's, it's often been in the 60, 65 range. But to be winning 75% is, you know, really, really good. Unfortunately, the number of first contracts right. is much less. Yeah, like zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the numbers I came up with in anticipation of today was that in the first year, only thirty six percent of the 
um, victories result in a first contract. Wow. And then there's a, there's some stats. This is a little older, but they say that only 56% ever get a first contract. Right, because the employers play the old game of delay, wait, litigate, delay, wait, right. litigate, replace people, fire people, union bus, close down. I mean, right. there's just this plethora of games that the employers play. And, you know, Starbucks isn't reinventing the wheel here. They're right. just following the same old playbook. Right. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. So Ed and I were talking about, you know, a, a couple of things. And one is the fact that you're listening to a lot of labor folks and podcasts and, and people bemoan various things. But nobody's ever coming up and saying, hey, let's instead of complaining, let's actually do something. Yeah. Right. And so this is the do something part. And so we talked about interest arbitration last uh, last week. Um, and Dale, you're familiar with interest arb. Yes. Okay. In two seconds, what is it? When the parties, employer, management, and labor, the union that represents the employees, cannot themselves come to an agreement, there are uh, provisions often in state law or elsewhere that will allow you to present the contract issues to a neutral arbitrator. And then either by agreement or by statute, as it is in Illinois, the arbitrator can come to a conclusion and basically impose a contract on those parties. Perfect. And that, that's exactly what we talked about. And and that takes away one party's disincentive or one party's incentive to, you know, surface bargain or not bargain in good faith or delay the process or litigate, et cetera, because there are time frames in this. Correct? Right. And that is and that's exactly right. And I'll give you the one stat that I just came up with this morning mm-hmm. in Canada where they have mandatory interest arbitration in the private sector, unlike here in the United States, yeah. 92% of first contracts get signed. Wow. 92. And that's compared to 30-something percent in, in the United right. States. That's right. I mean, 92. So it, it, and I think it it's works. primarily because of what you just said, Ken. It's a disincentive not to reach agreement on your own. Right. So let's let's drill down on that, okay? So we, and, and by the way, for the listeners out there, you know, Google interest arbitration. Uh, you know, you can learn all about it. It, it really, it, it's much like a salary arbitration for a baseball player. Right. right? Usually it's, you hear about arbitration with baseball players. That's right. Um, and I think we're going to uh, interview an arbitrator at some point as well. Um, but let me let me ask you this, Dale. Right now you said earlier that uh, Illinois has it in one of its statutes, and that is the public sector statute, right? Correct. Poli- police and fire in the state of Illinois are not allowed to strike. And in exchange for that, they agreed to interest arbitration. That's right. Okay. Um, recently, over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, give or take, they changed that statute as well. They modified it to allow non-police and fire, i.e., teachers, uh, public works, you know, whatever it is, um, to also uh, engage in interest arbitration if you have a first contract of a group of 35 or less. Now, I did it for a long time. The threat of that arbitration was actually more powerful than actually right. going to the arbitration. Did, how many How many did you actually have? I had none. I didn't, yeah. not, not a single one because right. I would say, great, you don't want to agree? We're going to go to arbitration. And lo and behold, you know, uh, we'd meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah, rather than them wanting to take their chances with an arbitrator and losing their position completely. That's exactly right. I just want to thank uh, Dale today. Uh, thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the Workers Mic right here on 720 WGN. We'll see you next week. Thank you, everybody. The preceding episode of the Workers Mic was powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. For additional information and podcasts of the Workers Mike, visit WGNRadio.com. Okay.
Okay, listeners, we are the We Rise Fighting Labor Podcast, welcoming everyone back to the show. Today we have a very special edition of We Rise Fighting. We are honoring the legacy of Dr. King and Mrs. King. And although there are many Dr. King commemorations in the U.S., MLK commemorations in January and throughout the year, we find that often his real program is sanitized, particularly his regard to his more urgent and radical positions. In particular, Dr. King's pro-labor, specifically his support for unions, and his anti-war stances are often not even mentioned at all. In 1965, opposition to the war then was really small, but labor had a big footprint in the opposition that did exist. In 1965, there was a, a, a labor assembly against the war organized to oppose the war, and it was peopled by members of 1199, AFSCME, this is 65, and other unions. And Dr. King came out at that assembly also. Uh, actually, that was in, pardon me, that was in 1967. 50 international unions sent 523 representatives to the National Labor Assembly for Peace at the University of Chicago, where Dr. King rallied labor to increase his opposition to Vietnam. And of course, right around that time, Dr. King gave his famous speech at Riverside Church in New York City, which we're going to listen to now. The revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out. No, no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alignment with the landed genocide of South America and say this is not just. Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate, into the veins of people's nominating, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Okay, so this speech was given in 1967. It was the year before the Tet Offensive in 1968, where the National Liberation Front forces launched an attack in South Vietnam, which went very badly for the U.S. That's when Walter Cronkite made his famous speech at CBS Evening News, saying that the war was lost. But when Dr. King made his earlier speeches in 1965 through 1967, 
It was a very unpopular position for him to take. In fact, he got a lot of blowback. He was excoriated in the pages of the New York Times, for instance. A lot of liberal organizations deserted him. One thought he was, quote, crazy, unquote, to be saying these things against the war at that time. But he took a very strong moral position, and that was Dr. King. That's what he did. And he was up against the bureaucracy of organized labor in the personhood of George Meany, who was the president of the AFL-CIO executive board, a racist and supporting of the war in Vietnam. So the unions that did join with Dr. King to oppose the war, they were on the outs at that time. And two of those unions were the United Auto Workers and the Teamsters, both of which were not members of the AFL-CIO at the time. And they formed an alliance against the Vietnam War. The two of those, I think it lasted maybe just a year and a half or two years. But by that time, Walter Ruther was continuing with his opposition against the Vietnam War, and the Teamsters joined him. So there was a lot of labor opposition to the war in Vietnam. And one could say that Dr. King was right in the middle of it, leading the civil rights movement in its historic coalition with organized labor at that time, of which there were it was still going strong. And so he was like the sergeant major in the community for organized labor's opposition to the Vietnam War. And um, so these are some of the uh, um, truths that Dr. King stood on and paid a big price for that we don't hear too much uh, in the breakfast for Dr. King. Uh, that will be going on Monday all across the country. Dr. King, his hearts and souls and blood were completely devoted to the working class. And we miss him today. So it's important that we just remember him and celebrate that wonderful legacy. And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. Welcome back, Mel. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>